0: morning, everyone. Uh, let's find 2 Peter chapter 1, and we're going to pick up in verse 7, which will be our next verse as we study our way through 2 Peter. Uh, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 7. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 7. Uh, Peter writes, "In godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. Let's pray together. Father God, I thank you for the opportunity to come, Father God, and to preach here today. Father, I pray, God, that I will preach rightly, Father God, that I will not um, hold anything back, Father God. I pray that none of this has been contrived, Father God, for my own intellect, but it is all, Father God, in response to what you placed upon my heart, that I've been led in the right direction, allow myself to be led, Father God. I have not Rebelled against it, Father God, but I've sought Your truth as You would share it with my heart, Father God. As You would illuminate within Your Scriptures, Father, that's been put together, God, primarily by Your hand, Father God. That I have, uh, that I have prayed and sweated, Father God, and, <clears throat> and and worked, Father, but that it's been Your Your will, Father God, that's guided this. And so as I as I proclaim what is on this paper today, Father God, I do so, God, understanding. That, that there's an expected now response, God, from your people, that your people would hear, Father God, their hearts would be moved, Father God, And they would be ready and prepared, Father God, to uh, react to a truth, God, that is not, um, not our own, Father God, but a legacy given by blood from Christ. Father God, we adore you. We thank you for the gift of the scriptures, Father God. We thank you, Father God, for the power that they have upon our lives. And we pray, Father God, that these scriptures would continue, Father God, to do mighty and amazing things in our lives. In the name of Christ, I pray, Lord. Amen. Okay. Um, um, first and foremost, there's a, uh, I used a quote, kind of a famous quote. And I don't want to be political about this kind of stuff, but at the same time, guys, we got eyes and we got ears and we understand that the world that we're existing in right now is not exactly the same world that was six months ago. A radically different world. Now, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said this, he said in the final analysis, a riot is the language of the unheard. What is it that America has failed to hear? Now, I want to say that with the, with the responsibility of saying this. In no way, shape, or form am I, am I advocating rioting, to be honest with you, nor am I even being particularly sensitive to it. It's a, it's a biblically untenable position to put yourself in. We're going to be guided by biblical truth. The Bible speaks to things just like this. At the same time, what we're going to say to each other is, okay, if I see something out in the world that I don't understand, that I don't like, that I find dangerous, that I know is in violation of God's scripture, it's an honest thing for believers to say, why does that thing exist? It may just be sinful hearts. There's a lot of things out there. Crime exists in every single nation. Um, without exception, crime is a reflection of the sinfulness of the human heart. We know why there's crime. It doesn't make the crime victim feel any better. But we know why it happens. So we said this. Now, while I don't defend—and by the way, I have this. I do defend protesting. Um, you know why I defend protesting? Because we do it. We go stand in front of an abortion clinic and pray and talk and share. Guys, that's a protest we are doing exactly the same thing, precisely the same thing. And I might add, when we go and do it, it's neither wanted by the community nor desired, is it, Brother Brian? No, they hate us when we go. We are absolutely hated by every neighbor, even the ones who, to be honest with you, who probably don't approve of an abortion clinic in the neighborhood, don't want us there either. Okay, we are not welcomed there. The opposite is true. So I defend the right to protest. It is an American right to do that. I defend that right. I do not defend the right to riot, but I want to deal with the right to riot. And I'll explain what what motivated this before I go any farther. Um, I was just, you know, Gathering information for something that's going to go on next week that I feel like I need to be more informed about. It. I've continued to pray and gather information. And I saw one, one guy on social media said this, a, a pastor, and a, a, a guy that I pretty much respect. What he said was, he said that it's not enough to say the gospel is the answer to America's problems. You have to show people why the gospel is the answer. That's like saying you need Jesus but not porting anybody to Jesus. You need Jesus is a smart remark because you don't like what somebody did. Sharing the gospel with someone is completely different. So what this guy said was, we don't need a pronouncement that the gospel is the answer. We need a proclamation of the gospel as the answer to our nation's problems. And there's a wrap So one of those things I, I want to do today, and I feel that God has led me to do through assembling this is that it will show how the gospel is an, aspect, uh, is an answer to an aspect of this problem. And understanding that the gospel in its an entirety is an answer to all the world's problems, but we do have to teach that. Now, uh, in, in terms of rioting, the Bible says very clearly in Proverbs chapter 29, verse 11, a fool gives vent to his spirit. So what we see on television are, no offense, a whole lot of fools like us Out, giving vent to their spirit they're angry and so they lash out once again as we talked about wednesday night the mistaken the mistaken trail of logic leads to a horrible conclusion which is that if i'm angry enough it doesn't matter what i do if i'm angry enough i can do what i want if i feel justified in my anger i can do whatever i want to do Think about how many bad things on both sides of these issues have been done because somebody was angry. Solomon closes this by saying, but a wise man quietly holds its back. Holds it back. So, so what we want to be is wise in this. We're not going to give vent to our anger in any way, shape, or form. No matter what side you're on, we're not going to give vent to anger. We are always going to hold back anger because anger just simply doesn't serve. You know, acting guided by the flesh of man has never accomplished good. James says in James 1.20, For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. All the anger in the world, all the frustration, all the bitterness never does any real good does not. It doesn't change things. Anger is not an operation of God in our lives. However, the goal, now listen to me, the goal of every conscientious Christian in this nation must be to listen, to consider, to repent, and to promote the required change. In other words, just because we may disagree with this or disagree with that, just because I don't like what I see on television, it doesn't mean they don't listen to my friends. It doesn't mean that when things are heartfelt and real, that I don't read them. There's, there's, no, there's never a Christian response in which we tune out, in which we turn off, and we just refuse to hear what's being said. That's the implication of, of that kind of thinking is that you and I are already perfect in our thinking and in our beliefs about everything. That's an arrogant perspective. The idea that this nation doesn't need to change is a ridiculous idea because we can, they're not writing about the stuff that we think the nation needs to change about. That's hypocrisy on our part to say it doesn't need to change because everybody in this room thinks it's got to change about something. We're voters. It is our right and our privilege and our responsibility to believe in our nation can get better. That's why we have democracy. Paul illustrated the fact that our journey is to live as Christ has instructed, sharing him, in effect wearing him, by seeing our lives remade in his image and not in the lasting oppression of the world around us, Christ Christ's work in our lives is to remake what he finds into his image. So that you and I would live, breathe, act, read, think everything as Christ would, not as the old man would. What we've undergone is not remodeling or renovation, but we are a brand new construction. The old has passed away, the new is now being instructed by Christ to look and live as Christ does. Now the apostle explained this in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. In verses 10 through 12, he essentially tells us that men and women must surrender their will as the church. Now right now I'm speaking directly to God's church. Understand that. We have come here collectively. Saints being equipped for the work of the ministry. With an acknowledgement that we need to be, to be taught How to live and serve like Jesus. That we have to come together and almost like school, like class, learn how to go out in this world and look like Jesus. Because none of us by our nature is capable of doing that. None of us by our nature will do that at all. And that part of that is surrendering our will to God. Saying, God, look, my way is so different than your way. Your way is so much higher, God. I surrender my will. And he says it in a funny way because he said, Look, we understand this that the Corinthian church was the most problematic of Paul's churches, right? You know, it required two letters that have been preserved and at least three letters that we know existed to work out the problems of a church at Corinth that looked a lot like an American church. It was an affluent church. Was a church at a crossroads of culture that was always taking in these ideas from all, corrupting ideas from all around the world. It sounded like the Corinthian church sounds like America. Because we have no ancient culture of our own, we there adopt the ways of all these other ancient cultures. It sounds like us. And then Paul's trying to tame this by way of a letter, by way of, of, uh, of epistle. And as he's writing to them, something has happened between the first, which is a very condemning epistle. Paul is so tough on the Corinthian church in that everything they did was wrong. Let's just put it that way. Everything the Corinthian church did in light of the first epistle is absolutely wrong on every aspect. There's no no theology or practice that's right in Corinth. But things have gotten better between the first letter and... And the second letter, and Paul says that. He said, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. Now that's a, that's a titanic statement for everybody in the church right now to hear. It's not enough just to do it. Look at it this way. We got some young kids in here. All of us at some point were young kids going to church. Anybody ever get dragged to church, kicking and screaming? And the ones that don't raise their hands are just lying. You wanted, now you old ones want to stay home and watch Roy Rogers. You know you did, and he only came on on Sunday. And if you went to church, you missed it. So I get it. I was you at one time. So the point is, is that all of us at some point were made to go. Someone above us in authority said it's good for you to go to church, and they just said put on your Buster Browns and get to church. And if you don't, you're still going to go to church, but I'm going to correct you along the way. Right? Fair enough? Well, here's the reality. For God to, when God started to grow in your heart, when you had embraced the gospel the implanted word that's able to save your soul, when that happened, you became a born-again believer, that responsibility that was enforced upon you started to grow into desire, right? All of a sudden, church stopped being something you wanted to avoid and started to be something you craved, right? You started wanting to go to God's house. In fact, a lot of us are here today primarily because we got so sick of not being able to be in God's house, right? Right? So, what once was enforced upon us has now become something that we richly desire. Our desires changed to mirror what God says. Okay? That happened in Corinth. That's got to happen here. Okay? Not just about about attendance, but about every aspect of the impact of the gospel upon the life of a lost sinner. We start to desire for God to do these things. So they're, they're starting to take up the work and now they're desiring this work. And then he said, so now finish doing it as well so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. Now I'm going to explain it very, very quickly. The Corinthians began to change as a people because they desired change. Their eyes had been opened up. They started to see what it was like to really live a fulfilling life in Christ Jesus, um, in, in, in faithfulness to the Scriptures. They started to see what it really means to be a believer, to be born again and have that brand new life. They saw that, and when they saw it, they desired it. When they desired it, their change started to gain some momentum. The works being done by Christ. It's a work of sanctification, of his changing hearts and minds to be in line with his scripture. But it requires a submission of the will of man. It requires that. So they begin to desire it. Paul then commands them that they finish doing this because their preparation in the Lord was bringing momentum to their personal development through the power of Jesus. They're growing by leaps and bounds now because finally those hard hearts had cracked open and they started to the desire to be something different. Think about how long in your Christian life personally, right now think about it, you failed to really grow as you thought you should and you failed to grow simply because your heart was fighting against what God was doing. He's gentle. And your heart was stubborn and fighting against it. So something had happened in the heart of these men and these women to radically change them. Paul says that readiness is all that we need to bring. Do you hear what I said? Paul said there was one thing required by believers to see themselves grow in, in, in the attributes of Christ by leaps and bounds. It's just readiness. It's a desire. It's being ready to see it happen. Our abilities and intellect are meaningless. I don't care how smart you are and how great you are and a million things. I don't care how easy the world is for you. Because there's some people in this world that are just faster and bigger and stronger and smarter and more talented than everybody else. And they've never struggled. I'll tell you this much. All those attributes in the world will not help you grow in Christ without a desire to grow. For that person who picked up physics or who picked up music or picked up sports without even trying at all, it doesn't make a bit of difference. If they don't desire to grow in Christ, they will not grow. They won't grow the way they're supposed to. So, for Paul says, what we bring is our readiness. Only a willingness to become more than we are now is what's asked of us. So, we're beginning with that, as we study attributes, study with what comes after, we start to pile these things up on top of our faith, to see us grow. The main thing we've got to have in this room right now is a desire to see this happen. Do we desire to grow? Do we desire? Somebody put, as, as, as my, my good friend, and who's retired now, said, he said that, I asked him how his church service went, he said everybody made a decision. They all decided to stay the same. How many times have we been in churches where we're tacitly, that's what we did. We just simply said, look, I'm just too busy and I don't have time for this and I don't have time to grow. And I, I think it's atrocious that believers would think that. I do not believe the scriptures rule out the fact that believers can think that because Paul preached so hard to the, first, to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians to start to see this change. it took a lot of work on the part of their pastor to see this radical change. Look, the passage for today will lead us into three conclusions. Now, I'm going to cover the first one um, separately. Two of them are from the passage itself. One of them is independent of the passage, but it's one I've got to mention, okay? And those two conclusions are, are just immoral characteristics, and we're going to talk about that in a second, that answer, and also serve as a rebuttal to the current of the zeitgeist, to the spirit of the age, because we're in an age with a really weird spirit. We're in the age where... We're in the age of cancel culture, And if you don't know what that is, ask me later, I'll explain it. But essentially what it means is there's no discussion any longer. Some things have been deemed to be right, and if you disagree with them, it's not just that you're a bigot. It's not just that you are out of touch. It's that all of social media will fall upon you, and you'll withdraw from the discussion. I guess that's probably the best way I can explain it without going into too much depth. So, so... Understanding that the Bible has got an answer to this. Even when the, especially when the days are evil, the Bible maintains that answer. At issue is the fact that I'm, I'm again, speaking of the current political climate in the United States. And I don't want to talk politics. I'm I'm not advising one way or the other. And I'm not supporting one party or the other. And will not. Will not. They both offend God. And I'm fully aware of the fact that many in this room have grown weary of talking about this issue. I think that's the other aspect that, I, that we're, we're going to be really hard-pressed to deal with. And that is the idea that because we are who we are by nature, at some point we just get tired of hearing about it. Even if we acknowledge it's true, we just get tired of seeing it. We want to move on. Our lives are so rigid and so hard and so difficult and so full of their own, you know, kind of petty little indignities. That we don't have enough heart to deal with all this extra stuff. Well, at some point, we want TV to distract us from our reality. We want the news to, to distract us with things that we don't feel we have to have a response to. Do you understand what I'm saying? So I get that you can grow weary of this, and some of you, many of us in the room already have grown weary. That does not absolve us of the responsibility to come here and deal with things that that are not somewhere else, but literally right outside our door. Literally right outside our door. Okay. First, I believe that weariness in the church is driven by two mindsets. First, the attitude that we can do nothing substantive to change the world around us. Therefore, we cannot speak um, of matters uh, that we cannot control. Now, that's an anti-gospel mindset that lots of believers have. So what can I do to change? I don't live in Minnesota. What can I do to change Minneapolis? Well, I'll be honest with you. Even the thought says that we do, says to the world that we do not have the life-changing truth. says to the world that we do not have the world-altering truth. The reality is this. Little old you, just like you are with your bank account, With your stature, with your ability to put words together, with your resources, little old you still has within your heart, if you've embraced gospel truth as your saving message, if that has happened, little old you has the power to change the world. And I will say this because of one person and one person alone. Not a biblical character, but one we revere in the Southern Baptist Church nonetheless. When Lottie Moon died, she weighed about 50 pounds. And she starved to death on a ship in the ocean. She had given her life through the truth to China. And I'll be honest with you, there are about 100 million Christians in China right now because of people like Lottie Moon. She was literally a tiny little lady. She never had enough money to worry about. But the gospel through her life changed the world. It is a ridiculous notion for believers to say that we can't change things. That is a lie in the church by Satan to keep us staring at four walls and not overcoming the world. That's all that is. So we must, we must abandon that mindset. And the other, I think, is even more wicked than that, is the feeling that we've done nothing wrong. And moreover, we are free to address other issues. Well, here's the reality. There's hardly a topic we can bring up that anybody in this room has done nothing wrong at all concerning it. Just, just, just specifically, if I'm going to talk about racism, I didn't come here even to talk about racism today. If I'm going to talk about that issue that would mean that I never, ever, if I said that about myself, that I don't have, I've never done anything wrong with this issue, that would mean i would never said or thought anything sketchy in my life. And that is a bitter, bitter, bitter lie. The fact of the matter is, there are 330 million people in the United States at least, and the overwhelming majority of us and the entire church bears some responsibility for this. We can all change. We can all change. Solomon instructed in Proverbs 17.10, a rebuke goes deeper into a man of understanding than a hundred blows into a fool. The fact of the matter is, if we have to come together every once in a while in the church and hear, to, and hear preaching like this and be rebuked, the fact of it is, matter is, the reason why the church gets rebuked is because it works on the church. Why well, rebuke the church? Because the church will Listen. Want to talk to the church about these issues? Because the church listens when God talks. Our very definition as people of the book means we respond when God speaks. God talks, the church hears. Rebuke works here. Rebuke doesn't work on the fools of the world. The people burning things down, rebuke doesn't work on them. They don't listen to God and they don't care. We're the ones, the church are the ones that can change. In this nation right now, the only group of people that can radically change to realign this nation on Christian principles is the church itself. The only one. And we're kind of putting it off on this bunch of, to be honest with you, you know, strange children as if they're going to be changed. And they don't even know our Lord. These crowds and these people, to be honest with you there's no element of change within them because they've never been changed in the heart. We're the ones with new hearts and new spirits. We're the ones that can hear and change. We're the ones that a rebuke goes deep into. Accepting and learning rebuke is the measure of Christ in us, the hope of glory. What makes us Christians is the fact that we can receive this rebuke, is that the Bible itself rebukes us. It tells us how bad we really are. Sinclair Ferguson wrote this. He said, no one enjoys being cross-examined or accused of having something wrong in their lives. But as we grow into the painful recognition that we have an almost unlimited capacity for self-deception. And that's the issue. Why is rebuke? Why is looking at the scriptures and, to be honest with you, not, not looking for encouragement, but looking for the scriptures to tell us what we're wrong so important? Because we never lose the capacity for deceiving ourselves. We never lose the capacity for telling ourselves that everything is all right when nothing is all right. For telling us that we don't have a problem when the problem is literally all over us. We learn, slowly learn that we need to be stopped in our tracks by God. If there's anything that the current time is telling me more than anything else is that that statement by Sinclair Ferguson is absolutely prophetically true. This is an age right now, not when we need to pay a lot of attention when people are burning Wendy's restaurants down in Atlanta. Not that I want that to happen. But that what really needs to happen is that the church itself, God's church, must be stopped in its tracks. This is not a matter of time in which God's church is allowed the uh, luxury of sticking their head in the sand and not engaging. Sticking their head in the sand and not proclaiming. He uses scripture to do this. We cannot reach our destination if we are traveling in the wrong direction. The first answer from the Lord for the age in which we currently struggle is that all of us must cross-examine ourselves on matters of relationship with one another. Unfortunately, some in the church will fight with all their lives against any alteration in culture because they feel like change is to abandon their heritage. I know heritage is a loaded word when you use it in the Deep South, folks. And I used a loaded term. I couldn't think of anything else to say. We'll fight, 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 fight to keep things the way they always have been. As if the way they always had been glorified God. We show our allegiance to be to our heritage and not to our Lord. If the way we've always been is an insult to God, then burn it to the ground. If the way we've always been does not bring honor and glory to God, then tear it down. For these unfortunate men and women, they've generated within themselves an allegiance to things which have no bearing on the Christian faith or God's kingdom at the expense of the truth. What I'm so worried about in our nation, in the church especially, is that we've got a lot of people who claim the moniker of Christian. But they're more, they are more loyal to their past and what they perceive to be their heritage than they are to a legacy of Christ. They've never asked, does this make me more like Christ or less? They never dared ask those questions. You know why? Because they didn't want the answer. We have a, we have a, that's our most common self-deception. We don't ask so God will tell. We don't listen so we don't have to hear. All that I advocate is the fact that Christians must look at everything with a biblical perspective. Every single thing in our lives, in our nation, in our entire culture, we look at with a biblical perspective. The Bible has spoken. God has spoken through God. Through his word, we know what he thinks about everything that matters. Especially in the days in which we live. Three issues are of greatest concern in engaging the culture. First, Christians are forbidden from showing what the scriptures describe as partiality. Addressed in Acts 10 verse 34, Peter says, Truly you understand that God shows no partiality. We are all sinners, condemned to hell by our sin. And when we are born again, we are sinners, saved by the grace of God. God does not favor you over someone else. He doesn't subdivide the world according to race, our, our economics, our nationality. God does not show partiality. Now that is a clear statement. James follows us by imploring us in James 2.9. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin or convicted by the law as transgressors. So if we therefore show partiality, and I'll just have to say it, racism is a form of partiality, then we are transgressors. We are sinners. I didn't say that. That's exactly what James says. If I favor the rich over the poor, then I am showing partiality, and I am sinning against God. In fact, fact, the Old Testament would say, if I favor the poor over the rich, I am showing partiality, and therefore sinning against God. God is on all our side, and on no one's side. If our culture shows partiality, racial, cultural, socioeconomic, it is by definition in need of rebuke and gospel proclamation. So when you, you live in a culture that finds a way to show partiality and, and, and certainly ours does, when you do that, then the response is to proclaim the gospel. Here's how it changes through the gospel. The contemporary response to this condition is anger. The culture is currently angry. However, this is misplaced and it has already led to sin. As Moses wrote in Leviticus 19 verse 17, you shall not hate your brother in your heart But you shall reason frankly with your neighbor lest you incur sin because of him. The method for reforming culture is not and has never been anger and frustration and rioting. It does not change a culture. The method for reforming a culture that was founded on at times unchristian principles is not rage or violence but honest and sincere Reasoning among brothers and sisters. How do we get out of the current mess our country's in? Exactly the way Moses said: reasoning, frankly, with your neighbor. God didn't give us an answer that was easy. He gave us an answer that was hard. That's interpersonal. That's person to person. There's no law you can you can you can enact. There's no no type of of. of Reform in policing or economics or whatever that'll fix this, those problems will linger beyond anything an impotent government does. The answer is among brothers. Once again, the answer is where in the church? Want to change America? Change the church. If America's broken right now, it's broken because the church is broken. So, how do we change? We change in the church. The most vital, most important body in the entire United States of America is God's church and so God's church gets these things right they'll always be wrong and Washington can do whatever it wants and it's never gotten anything done and it never will get anything done because it's part of the same impotent and broken system the church can change what senators can't one grandma in a church can change more than Nancy Pelosi can radically more The answer is not ventriol or demonstrations, but dialogue and discussion, which leads to repentance and reformation. All those times we have been in front of that abortion clinic, those of us who've been there, we all understand the real solution is what? Getting one little girl to talk to you, isn't it? You can shout and and play music and stand up on the ladder and bullhorn and all that ridiculous nonsense. But if you can ever get one of those little girls' eyes to meet your eyes and you can show them the kindness of God and the truth of the scriptures right there in the Bible, you'll save that baby. But until the discussion happens, it'll never change. Right? They just get more advanced in how to ignore. The moment The moment you form that relationship, you can start to change the world. The church must be the leader because no other institution combines truth with power. The reason this will work is because of the impact of the two characteristics in our focal passage. You have got to get them right now as we close. Peter challenges the church to add to the impact upon their faith. Two Greek terms, which for all of us who've been in the church our whole lives, they formulate a great deal of the entire moral teaching of the last 50 years of the Protestant Church. Two ideas, right? Two Greek words, Philadelphia and Agape. Philadelphia, brotherly love, just like the city of Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Philadelphia, brotherly love, and Agape, love, godlike. The love of Christian brothers is Philadelphia, and this godlike goodwill love of Agape. This is. We've, we've talked about this so many, you've heard so many sermons in your life. If you've been in the Baptist church or in the Protestant church, you've heard so many sermons in your life about the use of these two words. This is, th- these two words, when they're in our lives, show the impact of the cross more than anything else does. I'm going to love the church differently, and I'm going to love the world differently. Everything that men and women of God are striving to be or ought to be is compiled in these two words. Everything. Encompassing the earthly love of the church toward each other. The newfound ability to love a world that hates us. And the transcendent manifestation of love which will be perfected in glory. That's the wonderful thing about agape love. Is that we'll try to practice agape love here. But we're going to fail. You know where we're going to practice agape love? In glory. In heaven. In the eternal state of man. We have no problem with it. It's going to be our natural state. is to love Jesus and those around us. In perfect love. I can't love Jesus perfectly because I'm broken. You can't love Jesus perfectly because you are broken. But in glory, when this, when this earthly shell is shed, when you're united with God forever, we will be able to love perfectly. Agape captures that transcendent idea of love. That we're loving with a goal. Love is the hand of God in our lives and the marks of Christ on our bodies. This love, Philadelphia love and agape love, are such powerful implements of God in our lives that they really show we've been with Jesus. It's not our morality. Through our morality, we love our God. It's not our ethics and our integrity. Through our ethics and our integrity, we love our brothers. It's not our work and our service. That's an aspect of the love of brothers or the love of the world uh, that that God's given us that enables us to show the cross. Love is the essential reason why we we would talk about this or we would close with this is that love is scripturally speaking the essential motivation for everything good that's ever happened to us. But not our love. Because once again, we're bad at it but for the love of one who loved perfectly. Love is the essential motivation for the cross. We have the cross of Calvary because of love. As Paul explains in Ephesians 2, 4-5, but God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Understand, look at the depth of what he just said. He loved us in response to the fact that we were what? Dead in our trespasses. Dead in our sins. God's response to your being dead in your sins was to go to the cross in love. Well, the cross is not a symbol of our value, but a symbol of our debauchery. The reality is him hanging up on the cross is a symbol of not how much we love him, but just how much he loved us when we were dead. Everything about the Christian faith is caught up in that idea of love. By grace you have been saved. Every step of the impossible journey to the cross was paved with Christ's love for rebellious and wicked people. None of us deserve the blood of Jesus as shed, shed as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. None of us deserved it when we looked I guess the reason I would say that is because if we're going to look at the world and have mercy on this world and not not just return the anger and the vitriol and the hatred that comes from this world back upon them, if we're not to return evil for evil, it is because we realize that we were just as misguided and just as broken and just as lost as those out there right now burning things to the ground. We were just as broken. We weren't better. We were the same. The depravity of man dictated the cost of our redemption. But love is the catalyst and its expression is in God's unmerited favor. His grace, as the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 2.9, But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Tasted death for us all. So that we might have his unmerited favor, his grace. The legacy of Christ in our salvation is his love shed abroad in our hearts. As Paul writes in Romans 5.5. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Love shed abroad is the way the King James Version had translated that. That's the way I remember it. God's love poured into our hearts. Look, our hope in Christ emanates from his love for us, which brought about the cross. Insanely wicked men and women can choose a different path by way of of justification and redemption through the gospel. Look, for those in this world right now who would do the most horrible of things, who would do things that would either cause us to shake our head or just simply bring, bring fear to us, there is hope for the insanely wicked because of what Christ did on the cross. Hate is not our future. Hate is our past. As believers, we begin today to love the church. First step, we're going to love the church. All races and all nations who have been made new by the blood of Christ. Understand, it's one thing to love that person across the aisle. Hey, sometimes it's hard, be honest with you, when you've known each other a time but God's command is very very simply is this first and foremost we we practice Philadelphia love we love the church and that means you don't just love this church you love the church down the road and the church across the hollow you love the church in another county in another state and another nation we're gonna love the church the way God commanded that Christians love the church black white yellow red rich poor we don't care we love the church Because that's what it means to add Philadelphia to your faith. We're going to love the church, the whole church. We're also going to love the world in the fashion of Christ who went to the cross for their sins, ignoring their taunts and thanklessly bearing their shame. We're going to love a world that hates us in the same manner that Jesus loved it. They attacked him and they insulted him and they pulled out his beard and they struck him and yet he still carried their sins to the cross. His death was sufficient for the sins of the men who drove the stakes and those who ordered it so. And if he can go and die for those who murdered him, then we can love those who insult us. Not because I say it. Because the scriptures command it. Because the Bible commands it to be so. To believe the gospel is to embrace the love of Christ in our lives for the good of the world. Through this, through doing this, through really embracing those two ideas of loving the church, Philadelphia love, and and agape love. Loving the world, trying to love the world as Christ loved it. Trying to love our Lord as we should. Through this, we're going to preach better. We're going to believe stronger. We're going to serve better and we'll witness more effectively. When we love as Christ loved, we love as Christ loved the world and he pulled it from the fire. Let's pray together. Father God, I thank you.